Now, will you please open up your Bible uh, to Ruth chapter 4. We only have two sermons left in our short study through uh, the book of Ruth. So we'll be in it today, and then we'll be back in Ruth 4 the morning of Christmas Eve. And so as you're trying to find Ruth, remember, it's just after Judges. It's just before uh, 1 Samuel. So you can find it. And while you're turning there, uh, let me kind of catch us up to speed, because everything that we've been learning in Ruth 1, 2, and 3 is all connected with these opening 12 verses in Ruth chapter 4. You may remember, right, that Ruth takes place, as chapter 1 tells us, during the time of the Judges. And there was a time when there was a famine in the land. So there's a family at the heart of the story, led by a man named Elimelech, and he is a bride named Naomi, and their two sons decide to leave Bethlehem in Judah, to leave the promised land and to go to pagan Moab. To try to escape the, the famine, to outrun the famine and go to a place with what they thought would be greener pastures. Well, they get to Moab and Elimelech dies. And their two sons marry Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. And then the two sons die. So then we're left with three widows, Naomi, the mother-in-law, and the two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Naomi then learns that the famine has ended, that God has come to his people, provided them with food, and so she decides she's going to go back home to Bethlehem. Well, one of the daughter-in-laws, uh, daughter-in-law Orpah, says she's not going to go, she's going to stay in Moab. The other daughter-in-law, Ruth, has been converted. She now knows and loves and follows the one true God. And so we see in Ruth chapter 1, specifically in verses 16 and 17, that she pledges that Naomi's people will be her people, that Naomi's God will be her God, and that she's going to go wherever Naomi goes. And so Ruth and Naomi head back to Bethlehem, and they arrive just in time for the barley harvest, which is then immediately followed by the wheat harvest. And so it's the perfect time for them to be back in Bethlehem because God's Word makes provision for poor widows like Ruth and Naomi where they can glean in the field of another Israelite. They can walk behind the workers, the reapers, out in the field, and they can pick up and gather whatever's left behind, whatever's skipped over, whatever's dropped behind them. And so Ruth does this. And in God's providence, the field that Ruth, the daughter-in-law, chooses to glean in belongs to a man named Boaz, who happened to be a relative of Ruth's dead father-in-law, Elimelech, and that's going to be an important point. Boaz then visits his field, takes notice of Ruth, finds out who she is, and then he is exceedingly kind and generous to Ruth. Ruth goes home and she reports all of this to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Naomi is so excited that Ruth just happened to be gleaning in Boaz's field because he's a close relative of her dead husband, Elimelech, which means there's a chance, there's a chance that Boaz would serve as a goel in Hebrew or in English, a kinsman redeemer, and that he would marry Ruth in a leveret marriage. He would love her, provide for her, and give her an heir to carry on the family line. And so all during the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, Ruth keeps going back day after day out into Boaz's field, and she keeps gleaning. But as the months go by, the, the Bible doesn't say anything about Boaz pursuing Ruth in any kind of romantic way. And so once the, the barley and the wheat harvest are over, 
Naomi, the mother-in-law, comes up with a plan. And she sends Ruth to go propose marriage to Boaz at the threshing floor at midnight. And we looked at this last week. It's a risky, reckless plan, but it works. Boaz agrees to marry Ruth. But there's one problem. While Boaz is a close relative of Elimelech, there's another man who's a closer relative, which means that closer relative, and we'll learn more about him today in our text, actually has, if you will, the first right of refusal to acquire Elimelech's property and to marry Ruth and to produce the heir. And so we read in Ruth 3, verses 12 and 13, Boaz makes a commitment to Ruth. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So Boaz says he'll do it if the closer relative doesn't do it. And so our passage today picks up later that very morning. And so here now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. We begin reading in Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. I'll read down to verse 12. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the, common, the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. 
because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love and for our good. And so we're going to walk through these 12 verses and then think about some applications for our lives today. And so look at the very beginning of verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. So Boaz, you know, he's introduced to us at the beginning of Ruth chapter 2 as a worthy man. And everything that he's done since then you know, continues to demonstrate that he is, in fact, a worthy man. I mean, his, his exceeding kindness and generosity to Ruth, right? His integrity in the middle of the night at the threshing floor. You know, he, he wakes up early, right, the very morning, and he does all that he promised to do. I mean, all of this is evidence upon evidence that Boaz is, in fact, a worthy man. I mean, he apparently goes straight from the threshing floor to the city gate, and he sits down. Now, we need to ask ourselves, okay, why is he there at the city gate? Okay, well, 3,000 years ago, the city gate was a lot like city hall or the county courthouse, right? It was the place of business dealings and legal transactions. So as we'll soon see, the city gate is where the elders of the city gathered to discuss things, to make decisions. So Boaz was most likely one of the city elders, and by sitting down at the city gate, Early that morning, he let everybody know that he intended to conduct some business that day. So Boaz goes, he sits down at the city gate, and then we read in the second part of verse 1, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So again, in Old Testament narrative, you got to pay attention to that word behold. It's telling you, hey, pay attention, this is important. Don't miss this. And in this case, don't miss what God's about to do. And notice that this man, this closer relative of Elimelech, the man that Boaz promised Ruth that he was going to go see, this man just happens to walk by. Right? Haven't we seen that before in the book of Ruth? Right? One of the key themes throughout the book of Ruth is God's sovereign care and plan and provision for Ruth and Naomi. Over and over again, we see examples of God's perfect timing Right, the Naomi and Ruth just happened to arrive back in Bethlehem in time for the beginning of the barley and the wheat harvest. Right, Ruth just happens to pick Boaz's field. Boaz just happens to visit the field in the perfect time to notice Ruth. And now, behold, the man Boaz needs to see just happens to come by. Now, we have a different perspective from Naomi and Ruth, right? I mean, we're able to kind of look out Zoom back, look at all the events, see how they're all connecting. And so my guess is it probably didn't feel like God's timing was perfect for Naomi and Ruth during all the, the many months of waiting to see what was going to happen. But we can see, can't we, that God's timing was, in fact, always perfect for them. And similarly, for your life, for my life, you know, God's timing may not feel like it's perfect, but just as God was sovereign in Ruth's life, God is just as sovereign in your life. That his timing in your life is just as perfect as his timing was in Ruth's life. Put another way, God loved Ruth. And guess what? God loves you just as much. That God's timing really is ultimately, perfectly working for your good and my good too. So Boaz, he sits at the gate. 
the other redeemer who has first right of refusal to acquire the land, to marry Ruth, to produce the heir, he comes by. Okay, so verse 1 continues. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So Boaz invites the man to sit down, which makes it clear that Boaz wants to talk business with this man. Now, we don't know this man's name. We don't know his name here. And we don't, we're never going to learn what his name is. Our English translation says that Boaz addresses him as friend. Right? Turn aside, friend, sit down here. But the Hebrew text is actually vaguer and even a little pejorative. The Hebrew literally means whoever, or such and such, or so and so. You know, in our vernacular, it's sort of like Boaz saying, hey, hey, buddy, come over here. Hey, man, hey, pal, hey, sport, Mr. So-and-so, whatever your name is, you know, you, come over here, join me. And then we see in verse 2, and, and he, Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So after calling Mr. So-and-so to come and sit down, Boaz gathers ten of the city elders to join them, then to preside over the matter that Boaz is about to raise. See, because Boaz is wanting to get the final and binding judgment on the matter of Elimelech's land and Ruth's hand in marriage that very day. Right? That's what Boaz told Ruth he would do. By the way, before we move on past verse 2, if you were here last Sunday, you may remember how I mentioned that the order of the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament is a little bit different than our order in the English Bibles. Right? In, our, in our Bibles, Ruth comes just after the book of Judges, which makes sense because Ruth opens with, in the time of the Judges. So it makes sense to come right after that. Right? And, and it makes sense, as you will learn on Christmas Eve morning, it makes sense for it to come right before 1 Samuel too. Okay, so that, all that makes sense. But in the Hebrew canon, the order's different. In Ruth follows the book of Proverbs. And we saw last week that that makes sense because Proverbs 31 is a chapter about the excellent, noble, worthy woman. The excellent, noble, worthy wife. And we saw last week that Ruth is you know, the epitome of a Proverbs 31 woman. Well, there's part of Proverbs 31 makes mention of a worthy and excellent husband. Proverbs 31 verse 23 says, Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So you see, Ruth is a Proverbs 31 wife, and Boaz is a Proverbs 31 man, soon to be husband. Okay, but in our text, back in Ruth 4, Boaz presents his case to the court of elders and to this closer uh, relative, Mr. So-and-so. We read in verses 3 and 4. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Okay, so theologian Ian Duguid says, Boaz is really saying something like this. Naomi has a field. She needs to sell it to raise money to live on. If there were a kinsman redeemer, however, he could buy that field and keep it in the family. Of course, the buyer would ultimately get to add the property to his own inheritance, provided, provided that there are no children involved. 
and you are the first in line, are you interested? At the end of verse 4, the man says, I will redeem it immediately, right? I mean, the opportunity that Boaz presents to Mr. So-and-so seems like such a good deal that he immediately says, hey, I don't even have to think about this. Of course, I'm all in. I'll take the field. Where do I sign? Now, there's more to the story. Before we move forward, this is another example of Boaz's character and his integrity and how he is the worthy man. You know, that Ruth is willing to marry him, and she proposes marriage to him. It seems as if this other redeemer, this other closer relative, is not even thinking about Ruth, not even thinking about the leveret marriage opportunity. But Boaz doesn't try to, to go around God's law, doesn't try to skirt past it, but he wants to deal in the, he wants to be, operate in the light, to be up front. And so one commentator puts it this way, our faithfulness becomes the stage for God to perform mighty deeds. Boaz had shown himself to be a good man, a man of character. He could have tried to ignore the nearer kinsman's claim. Instead, he showed patience, disclosed all relevant information, and gave Mr. So-and-so his rightful opportunity. Boaz accepted the possibility that he might not get either the land, or more regrettably, it would seem, Ruth, Everything was done in the open with respect for the law and God's will. So you see, just as the story of Ruth is full of reminders about God's sovereignty and about God's perfect timing, the story of Ruth is also full of reminders that it's always the right time to do the right thing. It's always the right time to do the right thing. It's never justified to do the wrong thing. We can, find, we can easily do it, talk ourselves into it, Tell ourselves it's okay, but it's always the right time to do the right thing. And Boaz, the worthy man, does just that. And he presents the opportunity to the closer relative. And Boaz knows that he may not get the field, he may not get the girl, and yet he walks by faith. Now, it seems as if Boaz has just lost the chance to marry Ruth because the closer relative immediately says he's going to buy the land, right? But Boaz still has a plan. It's not deceitful, but it is calculated and it's wise. So, after Boaz presents the opportunity to buy the land, Mr. So-and-so quickly agrees to buy it, and then Boaz says, oh yeah, okay, there's one more small, really tiny detail I need to tell you about. This land is wonderful. And guess what? There's a bonus. It comes with a new wife. And, and so then we read in verse 5, Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi... You also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So Boaz essentially says, hey, that one more detail is that the land comes with, you know, this bonus, you know, a young widow named Ruth. And listen, she's great. You're going to like her. And it's good you're going to like her because if you buy the land, then you have to marry her and you have to produce and raise a son for her dead husband on your own dime. So that, and that means you just have to cover stuff like, you know, private school and piano lessons and braces and college tuition. And, you know, and don't forget, the son will ultimately get the field, not you. But hey, listen, I'm so glad you're willing to do this. Just please, you know, just sign right here. Just sign right here. And that's basically what a leveret marriage entailed. 
right? We've been discussing it each week as we move through Ruth, that Deuteronomy 25 says that when a husband dies, leaves a widow without any son, then the man's brother or a close relative in Hebrew, a goel, or in English, kinsman redeemer, is to marry her and have sons to be the heirs in the dead relative's name to preserve the family's inheritance in the promised land. Therefore, the point that Boaz makes in verse 5 is that the purchase of Naomi's land triggers the need for the kinsman redeemer to marry Ruth for the purpose of having and raising a son to eventually inherit the land. Now, that detail was no small detail for Mr. So-and-so. In fact, he says it was a deal-breaker. We see in verse 6, Then a redeemer said, I, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So think about this. Mr. So-and-so was eager to buy the land, help Naomi out, when it looked like he was going to receive a discounted price on the nice new field. But everything changed for him when he learned that in addition to the field, he was getting some new dependents. He was getting a new wife in Ruth. Naomi is a new mother-in-law. Any future son that he had with Ruth would not be considered his heir, but Elimelech's heir, and the son would ultimately inherit the field. You see, this man was happy to help Naomi and to be the kinsman redeemer whenever he stood to gain, but he was not interested in being the redeemer whenever it was going to be costly to him. Now, there's, there's something to take away from this for us. You see, ministry, opportunities to serve and use our gifts for ministry, they're wonderful. Wonderful. And, 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 and I hope that you have various avenues to serve and to use your gifts, and to be engaged in ministry. But opportunities for service and ministry, when they're real, meaningful opportunities for ministry, they're often like this. They're often costly and not very glamorous. Right? We can think that we're so very eager to serve until we learn and realize that real, meaningful ministry can be thankless, largely unnoticed by the masses and even quite costly to us personally. Again, I mean, using our gifts for ministry to Christ's church is so sweet, it's so rewarding. We want to help you do that, but know that it's not always easy. It's not always fun. It's not always in the spotlight. You won't always get everybody to clap for you. That real, meaningful ministry is often out of the spotlight, and it often involves serving in giving of yourself to others in very sacrificial ways. Now, we're able to do this by God's grace, right? We're able to do this and serve others and give of our time and our talents and our treasure to minister to others and to bless others because we are recipients of God's grace. Right? We know that we did nothing and we do nothing and we will do nothing to earn God's grace. See, before Christ saved us, Right? We were a lot like Mr. So-and-so, right? We tended to prioritize our own interests above everyone else. But because of Christ, we can die to self. We can look out for the interests of others because we now prioritize Christ's interests above our own interests. That's what we see in Boaz's life. This is a man who knew the grace of God, and I think that's an important lesson to learn here. So in the end, 
Mr. So-and-so said, Boaz, thank you for this opportunity. On second thought, you know what? I can't afford this field after all. Boaz, why don't you buy it? So we read in verses 7 and 8. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. So apparently this is a common practice for some reason, okay, 3,000 years ago, to take off one sandal, hand it to the other. You know, it's odd, but we've, you know, we've done, throughout human history, we've done lots of odd things, right? Like during that time, whenever you would spit in your hand and, you know, shake on a deal, right? All this stuff's odd. Um, so Mr. So-and-so takes off his sandal, gives it to Boaz, in doing so, he is giving up his rights to the land. He's giving up his rights to Ruth, transferring those rights to Boaz. And then we see in verses 9 and 10, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So Boaz announces to the elders, to all the crowd of people who are watching these legal proceedings, that he had formally agreed to be the kinsman redeemer. He's going to buy the field. He's going to provide for Naomi. He's going to love and marry Ruth. And it was his aim to have a son with her to fulfill all the requirements, all the duties of a redeemer in a leveret marriage according to God's word. Put simply, Boaz will pay the price. Boaz will cover the cost. He will faithfully keep his promise. He's a worthy man. He commits to being a worthy, faithful kinsman redeemer. And then the crowd of onlookers and elders at the gate, they all bear witness to what happened that day, and they proclaim a blessing over Boaz and Ruth and over their future son. And so look at verses 11 and 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who was coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, what comes next is the wedding, but you have to wait till the morning of Christmas Eve, okay? So that's, that's your present, so that's coming, morning of Christmas Eve. But today, before we leave, two things to think about. First is, there's a contrast between two redeemers in this passage. First, one redeemer is merely a potential redeemer, a could-have-been redeemer. Could have been, but instead he puts his desires and his perceived needs first. And that potential could-have-been, would-have-been redeemer, he has no name. He's just Mr. So-and-so. And that's it. No idea who he is. Boaz, on the other hand, fulfills the role of kinsman redeemer, serves others selflessly and at great cost to himself, and his impact, his legacy, his name endures. His name is only found here. His name is found in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. 
Now, more about that in a couple of weeks. But Boaz, this faithful kinsman redeemer, though not a formal, technical type of Christ, mainly because the Bible doesn't say that he is, but it is important that we notice that Boaz can and does point us forward to our true redeemer, who will be born a thousand years later in that Bethlehem manger on that first Christmas and born in Boaz's lineage. So I want us to think about that redeemer. You see, because I, I fear that too many people in our city, too many of our neighbors, too many of our friends, perhaps even too many people sitting in churches, maybe even some of us sitting in this very sanctuary, we don't really understand what kind of redeemer Jesus really is. That we get some of it, but we don't really understand the, the salvation that Jesus brings. We, we get some of it. And we know Jesus is important. And we know that we don't get to heaven without him. And we know that he helps us. But we miss the fact that Jesus is a real redeemer. He's a real savior. He really redeems and he really saves sinners like us all of the way. He really does. You see, Jesus does not merely point us in the right direction and give us some, some tips for living and say, okay, you'll figure it out. Try harder, do better, stop doing bad things, start doing good things. Do that well enough and long enough and sincere enough and just maybe, just maybe you make your way to heaven. Okay, to, to, since, since we all know that college football season is officially over, like it's, there's no more games left, it's completely over, I'll use a football analogy. I don't normally use them, but now that the season's over, we can use one. It's not as if Jesus drives the ball all the way down the field to the five-yard line and then lets us carry it across the goal line. No, Jesus does it all. He is a real Savior, a real Redeemer, fully redeems us. The cost was not too high for him. He paid it all, and he did not leave any of it for us to pay, as if we could pay it. Think about what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. The Apostle Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, Mr. So-and-so thought that the price was too high to pay, but not so with Jesus. Right? Jesus paid a debt that he didn't owe to save sinners like us who owed a debt that we could never, ever pay. And he paid it all in full. We, us, spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt, he pays our debt for us, and he pays it all completely, covers the cost, pays the price. None left over. Not even the tip left over. Nothing left over. He covers it all. As the hymn puts it, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He cancels our sin debt. He washes it away completely. And that's part of, part of the gloriously good news of the gospel, that our sins are forgiven. But that's not all of it. You see, friends, if your sins are forgiven today, 
What are you going to do about your sins tomorrow? Forget about tomorrow. What are you going to do with your sins later today? What am I going to do with my sins later today? It's wonderful for our sins to be forgiven. What we, all, what we also need is righteousness. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, talking about Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. He paid the penalty for our sins in full on Calvary's cross, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is a real redeemer, a real savior. He paid for our sins in full, completely, utterly. Our sins washed away, and he credits us. He imputes to us his very righteousness. Our sins washed away, and we are clothed in his robes of righteousness. The question this Advent is, do you know this Jesus? This is a Jesus who's not just helpful in some ways, not just a Jesus who gives us a helping hand. This is not a Jesus who merely points us in the right direction and tells us to get our act together. This is a real Savior who saved us fully, utterly, with his life, death, and resurrection. Do you know him? Do you know the salvation that he gives? Are you receiving and resting? Resting, not working, resting on the work that he has accomplished on your behalf. The second thing is notice in this passage, there's a movement from Ruth being an outsider to being an insider. So look again at verses 11 and 12. That all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, again, we're going to say a lot more about genealogies in the final Ruth sermon. But for today, don't miss the fact that Ruth is compared to Rachel and Leah and Tamar in this pronouncement of blessing. You see, and in doing so, all the people who are, all the onlookers, all the elders at the gate, they're recognizing Ruth as a true Israelite. Even though she was born a Moabite, you see that? I mean, she, all throughout the book, she's been referred to as Ruth the Moabite. But not here. And not ever again. See, the people are declaring that Ruth fully belongs. Fully belongs. I mean, right, Ruth had told Naomi back in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, your people shall be my people, your God, my God. And now Naomi's people are telling Ruth, you are one of us. Right, Ruth said, your people will be my people. Now the people are saying, Ruth, we are your people. You are one of us. David Strain, the pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, says, for now, let us grasp clearly that Ruth, the outsider, is now Ruth, the insider. Ruth, the stranger, Ruth, the Moabitess, is now Ruth, the heir of Israel's matriarchs and the caretaker of Judah's future. That is what the kinsman redeemer Boaz does for her. And I say all of this to help us see that's what Christ, our redeemer, does for us. Right? That we were all once outsiders, outside of God's grace, outside of this salvation. But Christ brings us in. He brings us near. 
He brings us all the way near, all the way in, all the way into God's own family. You know, in, uh, we studied the book of Ephesians a couple of years ago, and in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says a lot about this in the second half of Ephesians 2. So if you look with me at verses, Ephesians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, remember that you were at that time. So he's talking to the, these members of First Presbyterian Church in Ephesus, okay, 2,000 years ago. And he says, remember, remember who you were before you became Christians. Remember who you were before God saved you by his grace. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, everything's changed. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near, but how near? As near as possible. All the way into the household of God. Paul goes on in Ephesians 2, 18 and 19 to say, For through him, through Christ, we both, that's Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father, verse 19, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Do you see that? That we, we are no longer who we once were. In this Advent, this Christmas, my gut is, my gut feeling is, my sense is that in a room this size, that there are some of us, maybe even many of us in this room, who we know these things with our heads, but we struggle to actually believe and to pray like and to live like that we really are no longer who we once were. But that really is true. You're a Christian, if you are in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. You are no longer who you once were. It's important that you believe that. You begin to read the Bible and the promises of God like that. You begin to pray like that. Worship, sing like that. Live like that. See, we were strangers. We were people who really belonged somewhere else. We were aliens, foreigners to God's kingdom and his family. We were outsiders. And justifiably so, we were outsiders without status. We were outsiders who did not belong. But now in Christ, everything's changed. So look carefully at Ephesians 2 verse 19. We're no longer who we were. We're no longer strangers and aliens. We're now welcome. We now have a home. And guess what? We're not merely refugees in this new home, but we are fellow citizens with the saints. And that's stunning. That's meant to be a stunning declaration. However, there's even stuff in verse 19 that's more stunning than that. Right? What's more stunning than our change in status from strangers and aliens to fellow citizens with the saints is that the verse goes further, and we are not just fellow citizens, but we are members of the household of God. Put another way, we're not merely citizens, although that would be wonderful compared to being strangers and aliens. We're not merely citizens, but we're children. As the Welsh preacher David Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, Christians no longer live on a passport, but we really have our birth certificates. We really do belong. We really have been adopted into God's family. 
He really does know your name. He really does love you and delight in you. And so trusting and resting on Christ and his finished work transforms outsiders into insiders, but even more than that, insiders into family. Oh, if we would believe that. Oh, if we would begin to read our Bibles like that, to to think on these promises in God's word like that. If we would begin to pray like this was really, that we believe this was true. We began to live and make decisions as if we really believed this was true. Friends, it is. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we are so thankful for all of your word. And in these days, we are particularly thankful for the book of Ruth and for the reminders we see of your sovereign goodness and your perfect timing in the lives of your people. We're thankful for the examples of faithfulness and how we see the way that you you honor living faithfully, realizing that it really is always the right time to do the next right thing and how you bless that, how you honor that. And Father, we're thankful for the many ways that the book of Ruth points us forward to Christ, our true Redeemer, and the salvation that he brings. Lord, may, may we truly believe and live in light of the truth that we really have been brought in, we really have been brought near, we really have been adopted into your family. May that transform the way we read your word and the way we worship and the way we pray and the way we live, and the way we treat one another. Lord, we love you. We ask you to impress these truths upon our hearts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.